This podcast is with none other than Phil Shepard, author of New Self, New World and Radical Wholeness. Phil is challenging the paradigm of Western thought-based intelligence and promoting embodied intelligence, which is what we can know by being in tune with the experience of the rest of the body, which does incorporate our brains and ultimately connects us to all of the phenomena in and around us in present time. So people who do yoga, meditation, or do some other kind of mind-body practice, I'm sure will resonate very strongly with what Phil has to say about this, as essentially you'll be practicing how to come out of the head and into what people are understanding these days to be the present moment. So the, the present moment, I suppose, is the juncture at which we can go into Phil's work and philosophy. So Phil, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity and the space here, the lovely space in Basel, for inviting me to Basel and um, to this weekend workshop I'm about to embark on and for sharing your wisdom, of course. Such as it is. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast, which is in conjunction with Healthy Souls. Mm. It's such a pleasure to be here, David. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the road that's led you here. Now, I know a little bit about that from reading your book, a very important experience at the age of 18. Would you like to give us a little bit about that particular experience and how that's led to where you are now? Yeah, the, the road uh, that, that led me here is uh, more literal than metaphoric. Um, when I was a teenager, I, I had this acute sense of uh, being raised in a story that wasn't reality-based. So it's like I watched the adults around me and, uh, you know, my sense was they were living in a, in a sort of fantasy world and inviting me to join it. And I could, like, I could literally feel my sense of myself, my sense of being located in the present, deteriorating, being compromised, being um, diminished by barriers and ways of thinking and modes of functioning that I was basically oblivious to because what they track back to is my culture, is the story that my culture presented about what it means to be human. And I, um, I fought it as well as I could. And I guess something in me just realized that if I didn't leave my culture, I was, I, I, what mattered most in my soul wouldn't survive. And so that brings us to the road. I went to England and bought a bicycle and headed off for Japan. And um, I cycled through Europe, through the Middle East, through India, and eventually through Japan. And, and you know, there I'm a teenager on a bicycle, wide open to the experiences of the, of the world around me. And on a bicycle, you... Uh, there's no barrier between you and the people in the street, the, you know, the people you're 
you're riding beside. Um, I had a, a, I had a, a race um, in the Middle East. There was a family on a, on, a, on a cart being pulled by a horse, and this horse was gorgeous. I mean, you talk about an Arabian stallion. This thing was magnificent. And they found it, I think they found it preposterous <laughs> that this guy on a bicycle could outrun the horse. And so we had this little race and they're cheering and I'm smiling and waving. And, you know, that, that sort of thing happens. And I absorbed so many different ways of understanding what it means to be human, of feeling what it means to be human. And the only time I felt culture shock was when I returned home. Mm-hmm. And there I am, I'm arriving back in the, the very neighborhood I grew up in as a child. And it, you know, so much of it was arbitrary. And, and I, I, I came home with the ability to question the assumptions that were actually living in my body. And so that really began a journey that was supported and fostered by, by reading, by encountering other cultures um, in ways other than that journey on the bike, um, by theater. I've been, uh, I've been in theater all my life. And the, the central question any actor faces is how to be fully present to the moment on stage. So all of the skills you acquire as an actor are transferable to any moment in your life. It's, it's an interesting way in to this thing we and others listening understand as being present and, you know, coming more into the body. It's, you're always really interesting because it, it's, it's the way in through theatre and acting, which from what I know again, was all sparked by you um, witnessing a no theatre production, the Japanese style, which provoked the journey over to Japan. So it's, yeah, it's a unique and kind of fascinating way into this thing we call trying to find presence. You know, many other people speak of it, uh, but, but get there via a different way. Yeah, and there's no, there's no one right path. There's a, <clears throat> there's a great uh, saying by Joseph Campbell, the guy who wrote about myths, um, that uh, if, if the path ahead is clear, you're probably on someone else's. And I, I like that. There's no, there's no one road to presence. But I was, I was particularly blessed by being so deeply informed by the grace and the presence and the, um, at the time, almost um, otherworldly attunement of no theater. So I, you know, when I returned to Western theater and, and, and continued working as an actor, I carried questions with me uh, that were rooted in the principles that guided no theater. And what are them principles and and how does no theater present itself so differently to Western theater, people who don't know? No theater 
is not at all concerned with um, the psychology of the characters or presenting anything that looks realistic. So they're already inviting the, the audience into an experience where the imagination of the audience is as important as what is happening on stage. So for example, you know, you might have a 70-year-old man playing a 16-year-old girl and he doesn't alter his voice. He, he doesn't pitch it higher or anything. He, he uses, he comes to that role with, with the, the whole of his being attuned to it and feeling it without, without, tr without giving any thought at all to how to present, mm -hmm. right? So in, in Western theater, in Western culture, we're very concerned with presentation. Um, and we learn at a very early age how to present ourselves to win the approval we so deeply need, how to win the smile or the hug. Um, and we continue in presentation mode. And there's this, this form of theater that is stripped bare mm. of presentation and what what moves, you know, what moves the, the actor's arm in no theater um, is an intelligence that so deeply resides in the body, it attunes to the whole. So the actors, you know, when I first saw no theater, I'd never seen an arm moved by this intelligence um, in the belly. Uh, which is the Japanese concept of hara, which is their word for belly. I'd never seen a head turn and see from so deep within the body. Um, so it really changed my life in, in very important ways. For you to have had that experience when you first witnessed no theatre, I mean, because it, you're saying it as though that was the crucial, that was the turning point. The, the, there must have been something in you, though, which recognised that in the theatre that you witnessed. Would, 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 I, would I be right in saying that? Or was it a completely new experience for you? Was it just, was your head completely turned? Or do you think there was something oh, already I, there? I, I, so, I so deeply understood what was happening on that stage as I watched my first snow play. Um, and I was... I was in tears at the beauty and the potency of it. And I was shaken to my core by exactly that, by what I, what I attuned to, what I deeply recognized mm. um, as something very familiar to me. Which is saying something because, you know, you, know, you, you were uh, a part of the Western culture, which you've been able to kind of step outside of look at and challenge. Um, a bit like what you're saying, you, you put in your book about Newton kind of being able to remove himself from gravity itself in order to witness what it, what, what it actually was. And it, in a way, that's kind of what you've done with this whole Western way of doing things and experience in the world. You've been able to to look at it and challenge it and see how it's made up and to see that it's 
transitory and, and it's not all-encompassing. Yeah, and, and the patterns that drive our behavior, many of them have been illuminated for me by, by contrast to other cultures. Um, unlike Newton, who, I mean, it's extraordinary to think of Newton watching an apple fall from a tree and for the first time that we know of in human history, he questioned what everyone had witnessed from the moment of birth. What you're, I mean, you're born yeah. into gravity. You're conceived in gravity. It's just there as the medium in which you live. And, and his ability to question that is just genius. So the medium in which, in which I live is my culture in a similar way. And, and it's been it's been a, a wonderful and and really deeply personal journey. To, I mean, and to feel within my body the barriers to my freedom, the the patterns that bind my responsiveness, and to trace them back to our cultural assumptions and and find ways of softening through them. So the, the bicycle journey from England to Japan was were the experiences on that journey all part of becoming to understand what we're now calling embodied intelligence you know even further and and if so what were what were the kind of things that that were happening because i mean we could do a podcast all on its own just about the man who cycled from england to japan on a bicycle at age 18 i mean that in itself is is is, is worthy of unpicking and finding information but you know it's got this extra thing for you which is which is it's informed and strengthened something that you felt intuitively at the beginning yeah yeah but i'm wondering how it might have done that you know what what exactly was happening on this journey where were you sleeping you know what was what was going on how did um, you survive th yeah there are there are there's several aspects um that come to mind. Um, one thing it did for me was I was I was deeply in my body all day long. I mean, basically, I woke up in the morning, had something to eat, got on my bike, and cycled until it started getting dark. And um, I slept outside almost uh, all the way. I mean, occasionally I'd be in a youth hostel or something, but in general, I'd be, you know, I'd be cycling along and dusk would come and um, time to find a place to sleep. And here I am in a foreign country, not even knowing what's around the next bend. And one of the most important things I learned, and I, I think I learned it because my life depended on it. There was a guidance that would take me to where I could spend the night safely. And, and every single night I felt that guidance and I followed it and I, I was never um, disturbed in my sleep. No one ever knew I was there. Even when I was, I mean, there was one time in Dubrovnik where I was um, in a, med I was actually, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a shower and, you know, clean up and all, but the hotels are so expensive, there was no way. Um, 
So there was this meadow that a public path went through and the meadow was just redolent with fragrance and the, and the grasses were high. So I, you know, I was within, uh, you know, 15 meters of dogs going on the public path and I hid my bike in the bushes and I had a great sleep. So, but, but, but I felt that guidance. I learned in a, in a deeply personal way that I am, that aloneness is a fantasy, that I was never alone, that that companionship, that guidance was, was always present with me. Can you explain then to people listening who may be kind of new to your work and, and philosophy, if you like, what it, what it is, you know, how we can kind of sum up our usual way of approaching things in the Western mindset, the Western world, which is so at odds with this other way. Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest way of framing that is that uh, we live in our heads and we think that's completely normal. That's where the brain is, where else would you live? Um, and it's, a, it's actually an aberration. So we, you know, we made a journey over our evolution of consciousness from thousands of years ago when um, in, the, in the late Paleolithic, early Neolithic, um, 6000 BC, we, we uh, in Europe, experienced our thinking in the belly. And that began to rise in the body and and there's this great you know around homer's day homer in his writing uses this word freen over and over in the original greek and freen translates into english as mind and diaphragm mm -hmm. so it's not that they got their anatomy wrong it's that they experienced their thinking in that region of the chest um, and there is a translator who preserves that, Richmond Lattimore. Uh, occasionally he'll have a character say something like, the mind within my breast understands your words. Mm. Just, just gorgeous. And then, you know, that movement, that movement paralleled our, our um, denunciation of the goddess and our uh, new allegiance to the god. It paralleled the way our attention went from, from the earth to the sky um, and uh, the ascent of patriarchy. Mm. So patriarchy, the domination of, of society and, and more particularly women by men, finds its original model in our relationship to the body. This intelligence in the head, which I you know, I personally experience it as the male pole of my intelligence. It's abstracting, it, it distances itself from things, it systemizes, it gains perspective. And that, that contained um, abstract thinking dominates the, um, what I experience anyway, is the, the female intelligence of my body and more particularly of, of the intelligence in the pelvic bowl. So the intelligence in the pelvic bowl 
attunes to wholeness. It, it um, comes into felt relationship, whereas the thinking in the head wants known relationship. It wants to know what the world is and what everything is, and, and, and it feels safe when it goes that way. So, so what primarily distinguishes the place we've come to as a culture is that everything we do is in a top-down modality. It's all we trust, and it's pretty much all we know. We've so estranged ourselves from the body's intelligence that, that the journey back to the body um, is elusive. It's difficult. It's how do you do that? And how do you do that, especially in a, in a world with so much that titillates and flatters the intelligence in the head? It's all a follow-on, isn't it, from the intelligence of the head. You know, everything we see around us is kind of a, an extension of that in, in, in our culture. Um, I think just to explain again for, you know, the, the people listening, if I can speak on your behalf here, it's, it's not that, it's not that the head intelligence, I'm assuming you're saying is, you know, does it, it's inherently wrong or bad. It's just that it's, you know, you're talking about the pole and, and where the intelligence has moved up from. We could see that as a kind of a spectrum. And, and it's not about the fact that head intelligence is in, inherently bad or wrong. It's just that we're only there at the minute and, and it needs reconnecting, would you say, with where we want, you know, integration. Yeah. Because if you're talking kind of evolutionarily, and there's other speakers who talk about this in, in, in the spiritual domain, if you like, Eckhart Tolle being one of them, uh, amongst others, and they kind of talk about the... There was some kind of evolutionary necessity for that for that phenomenon to, to have happened. Can you sp maybe speak about, about that and, and maybe any future kind of necessity for any head-based intelligence once it's integrate, integrated back into, you know, the intelligence of further down. Yeah, I mean, without, you know, and, and there was that, uh, you know, necessary flexing of, of the male perspective. And, and without it, we wouldn't have Shakespeare, we wouldn't have Bach, you know, we wouldn't have the gorgeous cathedrals. Uh, um, I think the ability to abstract as well, sorry to cut you off there, but just wanted to get this in, because kind of what I've seen you doing with your challenge of the culture is in a way, is it, is it not maybe utilising an aspect of the culture in order to turn it back on itself, which is, you know, to step back from it and to, to, to be able to critically analyse it and, and see where it might be going wrong. I love abstractions. I mean, I delight in that. And, you know, as, a, as, as an author of books, um, that's probably highly evident. What has happened in our culture, though, and it happens so systematically, is that we have divided our thinking from our being. So that we've come to believe we can think more clearly 
when we shut down all the information below the neck and just just go it alone in the head, um, all of my abstract thinking is is joined to my being. It, um, any abstraction that resonates through the body will be clarified um, and gain a gain come into relationship in a different way than if it's hoarded in in the cranium. So the challenge we face in reunifying the intelligence of the head with that of the pelvic bowl is how to reunite our thinking with our being. What does it, you know, what does it mean to think with the whole of your being? And when that happens, it's a very different experience. Um, any thought I have, I feel. Mm -hmm. It's like a note ringing through a bell. And any feeling I have, any sensation in the body, I recognize as a form of thought. So, you know, in the, in the Latin verb sentire, which gives us sensation um, in English, and, and the, that original Latin verb meant to think, to feel. And those, both of those sentence, senses still show up in English. So I could say, you know, I, 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 I sense this isn't safe and I'm talking about a feeling. Mm -hmm. Or I could say, you're not making sense and I'm talking about linear thought, abstraction. So, so thinking and being, we still recognize in that, in that word the, that relationship, but we have, we have rent them asunder um, and deliberately. I mean, you look at what, what the public school system does to kids and it sits them at a desk and it stifles the body's energy. And if you can't, if you can't suppress your body's energy, you're gonna get in trouble. Um, if you suppress the body's energy, you are suppressing the body's intelligence. And meanwhile, we are filling our head with the right answers. And the more we, we can fill our head with the right answers, the more successful we'll be. So that, that divide is, is systematically reinforced in us. Mm. I, I, yeah, well, thank you for that, because I think it was important to kind of let people know we were new to your work, that it's, it's not anti-West or anti head headist or, or anti-intellect it's it's about integration isn't it and yeah and what i what i might add to that is that i think we are at the threshold in terms of the larger picture of the evolution of our consciousness where until now we have experienced our thinking as a localized phenomenon. We experienced it in the belly, in the late Paleolithic, you know, in the chest in Homer's day, and, and since Plato we've experienced it in the head. And I think where, we're, where we need to move is, is into an integration of our intelligence. So, you know, our intelligence is felt through the whole of the body. And, and it's, you know, these, these poles of the male pole of the head and the female pole of the, of the belly um, are, are in unity, are in constant exchange. And it's like a, an axis of intelligence rather than a localized phenomenon. And, you know, in the same way that a 
bar magnet holds a field around it, that axis of, a, of intelligence um, holds a field and attunes to a field that holds it. Mm. Thank you for that. That uh, kind of makes it clearer. And this coming back into, you know, the balance between head, pelvic bowl, male, female. I, I mean, I can see personally from, from my journey, and I'm sure I can speak for a lot of other people here, you know, I, I could say, you know, my journey up until like my mid-twenties, maybe late-twenties, was was classically trained in, you know, Western culture, shall we say. I'd, I'd got seven years' worth of university education in me by that point, you know, gone through the schooling system, absorbed all of, you know, the Western ways of approaching the world through through the head. And, you know, I loved thinking. Yeah. I used to say it to myself, I loved thinking. I, I, you know, at the time, thinking that it was, thinking was where it was at. You know, I'd love to be off in thought, I'd love to daydream, I'd love to apply thought to things, to, to be able to fix things. It's got downsides, and I know that from my own personal journey. You know, I, I got to a point mid to late 20s where, you know, my life was, was just completely upside down in terms of, you know, where I was in my health and me, my being, and, you know, a, 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 a long period of distress and kind of mental um, uh, ill health, really. Um, and so for me, the way, the way out of that, coincidentally, and, and it is kind of why I come to your work, as, as I'm guessing it is for a lot of other people and why they take the path they do, it was a, it was a path of coming down from the head and still is, you know, it still is for me. It's, it's, so, it's been so ingrained in me, you know, to use the head for so many, you know, as a, as, as a kind of one-size-fits-all approach you know, and, and my journey now is all about can I, can I come down from there? And, and that results in a lot of the activity that, that I, I do these days. So, you know, for people listening who are on a, on a similar journey, can you maybe ex explain how, what you do and what your philosophy can, can bring to those also wanting to come from the head and, and back into a place of integration between head and you call it the pelvic bowl, there's also the heart in there. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any possibility of an integration between the head and the pelvic bowl and of course the heart without without an integration with the present. So we, we've been trained and taught to think of our intelligence as a, as a it's like a computer in the head, um, as though everything it needed were there, all the programming were there, it just needs to get um, input from the world and it will process that and, and, um, and that is debilitating um, as a as a metaphor for our intelligence, so that you know that journey from the head back into the body is not 
um, is not a journey about learning how to listen to the body. Because if you're, which is, which is what a lot of embodiment gravitates towards, listen to the body. And it's great listening to the body. It's, you know, especially in, in, in circumstances of injury, that, that close attention to the body is really necessary. But the metaphor, listen to your body, basically says, well, your body's in the room next door. And there's a wall separating you from it. Mm -hmm. And the best you can do is put your ear to the wall and find out what's going on on the other side. So it's, 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 a, it's a metaphor that means well and is actually ultimately disabling. It's in reinforcing the very paradigm that it purports to help us overcome. Mm -hmm. So my work is about listening to the world through the body. And I really experience the body and the body's intelligence as a, as a resonator, like a bell. And what happens in our culture is the, the bell loses its resonance. It's like, it's like our bodies are stuffed full of um, doubts and tensions and and concerns and it's like you take a bell and you stuff it full of cotton balls and then you go to ring it and it, it, it doesn't ring. Now when that happens, when the bell loses its resonance, all you can do is guide yourself. There is no, there is no intelligence, there is no mindful present to attune to. If you can't feel it, it doesn't exist. If your body is, is consolidated um, with, with tensions and neglect, then you won't feel it. And then, and then returning to the body, being able to listen to the world through the body, um, will be uh, impossible until you discover those consolidations, those shadows of neglect and integrate them and, and recover the spaciousness within the body that allows you to feel all the world there. So I think in the book you refer to that as the energies that resist integration. Um, and you know, these things, you list seven things. So amongst them, and maybe a few more is emotions, ideas, beliefs, muscle patterns, warnings, speech, centers of intelligence, the energy of the present and vigilance. Could you maybe speak about how a few of those things, you know, present themselves as the energies that resist integration? Shall, shall we go with say, I think speech is a good one because everybody is speaking all of the time and and also our emotions because it ties in quite nicely with some of the work that I do in my place of work, the Brink Recovery Social Enterprise in Liverpool and what's, uh, what lots of other people are, I know are doing which is working with those emotional resistances you know, doing some work to try and free them so can you maybe speak about a few of those things and how yeah, they yeah. present as resistance? Yeah, in, in, in moving towards wholeness, you have to let go of any notions about um, 
fixing your problems or getting rid of bad thoughts or the only thing that will move you towards wholeness is integration. And it's that thing, uh, you know, that, that, that wholeness has no boundary. And so, there, what, you know, you're trying to get rid of bad thoughts. Where, where do you put them? They're still, you know, they're still there, a part of your being until they've been integrated. And that, you know, there's an image that appears on the cover of Radical Wholeness um, that I keep coming back to for a, as a metaphor for integration. And that's the Mr. murmuration Rose. of starlings. Oh, starlings, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get a quarter of a million birds flying in this. It's almost like an organism in the sky and it ripples and it elongates and it condenses. And, and um, if people listening to this podcast don't know what a murmuration of starlings is, uh, go to YouTube and Google or, or input um, murmuration. And uh, my gosh, it's, it's a sight to behold. So if you imagine a lone starling separated from the murmuration and then it finds its way back the movement of that starling will be harmonized by the whole and the harmony of the whole will be slightly attuned by the inclusion of that other starling so in a similar way we have these energies in the body we have we have emotions that aren't integrated, we have ideas that aren't integrated, we have muscle patterns that aren't integrated, and it's like that lone starling. We, we hold these things away from our being because we can't afford to integrate them at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's life. As a child, you know, the world is overwhelming and, and tragedy comes, and how do you, how do you withstand um, integrating um, an overwhelming world. And so we park these things in the body and they sit there and wait until we, you know, we grow into ourselves a bit and we, we, we grow uh, our roots and we gather a foundation and then the time comes, okay, you're ready to integrate it. And that, um, that really, you know, those unintegrated energies I think of as orphans and they are alone um, and what they need is, is to be loved. They need to be accepted unconditionally. Acceptance was the word that comes yeah, to my opinion yeah. as well. And then, you know, you, you can feel the energy in the body and I do this um, in, my, in my work and especially in my facilitators trainings to bring that energy through the body to actually come in contact with that intelligence of your being which resides in the pelvic bowl and you'll feel it integrate. Um, and, then, and then you're opening that space within the body and suddenly you're not alone because the whole world is living through you. Mm. An experience I had with that recently was, was coming here on, on the plane or two planes, you know, from Liverpool to Munich to Basel, and a whole host of stressful situations in the airport. They kind of singled me out, you know, as the guy that needs to be checked out and stuff like oh. that in airports for some reason. Don't know what it is, but you know, stuff like that. And you know, am I getting on time to where boarding is? Anyway, 
sitting on the plane, you know, after all of that, there was there was just this kind of stress, anxiety, you know, this like, you know, my blood was, was pulsing. I mean, thankfully, I was on my way to Basel to meet Phil Shepard and talk about radical <laughs> wholeness because that, that was the provocation to go, okay, so I'm feeling this. What what's the answer in this situation? And it and it was just it was just that it was just let it be there, yeah. You know, and and feel it even more than what you usually w- would, rather yeah. than trying to see how I could fix it, see how I could get rid of it, you know, and and all that kind of stuff. So is that what you mean when you're talking about integrating a few of these energetic resistances? Yeah, I, I mean. Uh, I think there's a basic principle. You can't be fully present until you're willing to fully feel everything you're feeling. Right? If there are, if there are things you're, you're not allowed to feel because um, of whatever the circumstance might be, that, that will be a shadow that, that, that binds up your energy and keeps you from being fully present. Once you're able to fully feel everything you're feeling, you have a choice to recognize that as energy and to allow that energy to settle down in the body. And it's a choice in our culture we don't realize we have. We, we try to talk ourselves out of something. We try to assure ourselves. So it's like, it's like, we're trying to um, appease our thoughts with other thoughts, and the body, the body is not going to be fooled. Um, but what the body responds to is that um, softening of the energy and allowing it to drop down and come back home. So, in terms of these two poles of our intelligence in the head and the pelvic bowl. Home, for me, is the pelvic bowl. The head is not home. I'm in exile if I'm living in my head, but I can be at rest in the pelvic bowl. And the nature of the intelligence in the pelvic bowl is inclusive, as the nature of the intelligence in the head is exclusive. So to be at rest there is to, is to be able to include the whole of my intelligence. Can you kind of elaborate a bit on on the pelvic bowl and when you're talking about resting there? Because when I read it in the book, I could only, again, think about that kind of abstractly and I I didn't really get what you meant by it until, coincidentally, a practice in Qigong (laughs) kind of encouraged me to go there. Uh, resting in the perineum and and stuff like that. Yeah. But but for people again unaware, what what do you mean when you say resting in the pelvic bowl and where you know where is the pelvic bowl and what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So if you're familiar with a skeleton and you there's the spine coming down and then there are the bones of the pelvis. Mm-hmm. That's basically the pelvic bowl. And coming to rest in the pelvic bowl. We are so used to enclosing our awareness in the head. And we've even bought into the fallacy that you can only be aware of the world from the head. Because while we see from there and hear from there, and well, where else would we notice the world from? And 
and other cultures um, show us that you can be aware of the world from deep, deep within the body. So I can feel the sights of the world from the pelvic floor, from the perineum. I can, I can feel the sounds of the world from there. And, and I can only do that when the center of my awareness drops down through the body and arrives on the perineum and comes to rest there. And when it does, a whole new world is unveiled. The world I thought was reality when I was in my head as I drop down and come to rest on my perineum transforms into something very different. I can, I can vouch for that. I mean, I've been experimenting with that since reading it in your work and, and some practicing Qigong. And the only way I can describe it, it's like stuff starts to go into like HD Technicolor or something. It's like everything just comes alive a little bit more. It's like it's a bit two dimensional until until you go there. So yeah, and and in your head, I mean the the intelligence in the head excels at analysis, and the word analysis means to break to pieces. Mm. So so. To live in the head, you see objects. It's an objectified world and different objects are, are separate from other objects. And as you drop down and come to rest in the perineum, that sense of, of independent objects melts into a field in which everything is part of a, of a felt whole and manifests that whole at the same time. It, it's funny, you know, the axis that you talk about with, you know, the opposite to the head being in the pelvic bowl, it, you know, because it corresponds with a lot of Eastern philosophy, Chinese especially, who, who have as the three Dantians, I don't know if you heard of it, the Dantian in the, in the pelvic bowl, and then the heart space, and then the head which correspond also with the yogic uh, chakras as well. So again, you know, w when you've gone on your travels to the East in search of no theatre and this, this hankering for Japanese culture, did, did, any, did any of these Eastern places um, Im impress these philosophies I just mentioned on you? Are you aware, familiar with these other kind of practices? Have, or have you kind of arrived at the same place but unaware of them and, and from a different angle? Both have happened. Mm. Both, both um, my experience has, has found language in, in other practices. Um, you know, and I, I you know, the, um, there's an African tribe, the Anglo Eve, who who um, don't have a word for sense, but the closest they have is a word sesalalame, and sesalalame means feel, feel at flesh inside, and they feel the world through their bodies, and I'd done that for years, and finally here's here's a, a, a culture that has language for it and that understands it. And uh, that was brilliant. And then, you know, on the other hand, there are, there are terms, um, 
you know, especially in Zen, which is is um, deeply influential in in no theater, that bring aspects of the world into a new clarity for me, um, where it's where it's it's almost like it's naming something vaguely familiar that I'm that I'm bent on remembering. Thank you. Yeah. So. Again, this balance, we're talking about the balance, you know, head, pelvic bowl, west and eastern, you know, head intelligence, body intelligence. World intelligence, self-intelligence. Yeah. How, how can we, how, how can we explain to other people yeah. without becoming too abstract? <laughs> <laughs> Because this is what yeah. I do, you see, you know, I try to tell someone and I, I end up in the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone has had a gut feeling, mm. I think, right? And that's, that's that intelligence at work. Um, people, people experience it all the time and they have learned to doubt it and mistrust it. Mm. Um, so there's a guy, John Coates, who's done a lot of research about what the body knows is distinct from what we consciously know. And, it, and you know, it turns out that the body knows a million times more information than the head. A million times more. And um, John Coates did this research where he... Um, He'd been a, he'd been a, a stock, trader. stock trader, high-frequency stock trader, and then became a neuroscientist, and then came back to the stock, uh, to the trading floor, to look into a phenomenon that he'd encountered where sometimes he would make a trade and he would know this is a winner, and he was right. And what's that about? And so he, um, he got a, a group of of traders and he asked them for a conscious assessment of, of the risk of a trade, of how well they thought it would do. And he also monitored the body with cortisol responses and things like that. So he'd gauge what the, how the body felt about it. And when you look at the conscious assessment opposite what the body knows, the body mapped almost directly onto the trade. The body knew exactly what the risk was. And the conscious assessment was all over the place. There was no correlation. So then he thought, well, if the body really knows that much more clearly, and this is, I mean, talk about abstract. You know, I don't think you can get more abstract than high frequency trading in the stock group mm -hmm. and the stock market. Um, so we got a, another group of, of traders and asked them intermittently what they thought their heart rate was. And they, I don't, I, I imagine you did it by texting. What's your heart rate now? And they answer and they were all wearing a heart rate monitor that they couldn't read. So they were guessing at their heart rate. The traders who were most in touch with their heart rate in the previous year had done significantly um, more successful trades than the ones who weren't in touch with the body. So Coates speaks of the body as a parabolic reflector. It, 
It attunes to the world. It is picking up signals we can't possibly be aware of consciously. And part of the part of the challenge is to wean ourselves away from that one millionth of our intelligence that wants to doubt what the body knows and gently, gently pay closer attention to what the body feels. So, you know, sometimes you meet someone and you have a really um, uneasy feeling and, and you know, you, oh, that's, that's irrational or you talk yourself out of that. But, but there's a reason for that. Um, Can that not be also based on, you know, prior experience and, and in a sense, you kind of overlapping that prior experience on, onto an innocent bystander kind of thing? Absolutely. So that's, if there, we spoke of unintegrated energies and unintegrated energies are always reactive whether they're ideas, whether they're emotions, they live in a reactive state. So absolutely you can be reactive, but the more, the more integrated um, those energies become, the, the more the body's intelligence moves from being white noise mm. to pure signal. Unless like uh, fear-based, would you say? Because I find it, you know, maybe it, it can be fear based on previous, which is giving me wrong signals about maybe a person or experience. I don't know what's your take on that. Yeah, I, fear can be can be a real thing. I, I, there was a story in a magazine about a woman who was driving along the highway and needed a rest stop, and she pulled off, um, and and just felt uneasy about it, in, like fearful, mm. and drove on. And later she read in the paper that, that a woman had been murdered at that rest stop that night. Mm. So we, we attune to the world, our bodies attune to the world in ways that cannot be rationally explained. And the more, the more we, um, um, open to what is resonating through the body, the more we take those unintegrated energies and bring them down, I think the more clearly we read the world. And, you know, when you go back to our Paleolithic ancestors, they attuned to the world in ways we can't even imagine. I mean, they, they you know, in quote marks, they spoke with plants. Mm. Um, we've got this bizarre notion that, you know, these um, herbal medicines that, that Aboriginal cultures um, are aware of, hundreds of them, that, that they, they got them through trial and error, because that's all we know is, is, is top down. But it's absurd. I mean, you, you think, okay, John's got a headache. What plant haven't we tried for headache? Well, here's one. Here, John, eat this. Oh no, John died. Does anyone else have a headache because we have another 347 plants to test for headache? I mean, it's absurd. But, but there's, a, there's research, um, Stephen Herod Buchner and um, Monica Gagliano, who's, a, who's an act, like bona fide hardcore scientist, has discovered ways in which plants communicate with each other, like 
through sound. Massively, yeah. Yeah. And, and the network underneath as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the wood wide web. Yeah. So that, so that our bodies, once they, once they return to the present, once the shadows of neglect have been integrated, will attune to reality in ways that our conscious minds will doubt and will mistrust, but will actually be more deeply connected with the living truth of the moment than this could possibly achieve. I think attunement is, is one of the big words that come from your book that kind of, again, resonates so strongly with, with myself. And you give plenty of examples of how attunement manifests, uh, you know, especially in the animal kingdom or even the insect kingdom. And you mentioned that example about the ants that are kind of pre predicting weather in some cases, you know, when there's going to be some really serious weather. Did someone done a study, didn't he? Deborah? Deborah Gordon. Deborah Gordon. Yeah. And, you know, the onset of some really bad weather, they, they kind of, um, they built a turret so that water would be um, kept away from the, the, the living quarters. Wouldn't, it wouldn't flood the colony. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and the, one of the interesting things about that is that ants, uh, the, the worker ants, only live for a year. So the ants building the turret weren't around last season when the monsoons came. Yeah. Right? It's not that they experienced it and said, oh, yeah. we know what's happening so this how time. How are they getting that information? Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and uh, you know, there's, there's, yeah, there's just so much in that. Um, but of course, where they're getting their information from is, you would call it, a field. You know, it's 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 the field of, of information, um, and I think you describe it when you describe what wholeness is, which is, the all-inclusive medium within which, every process affects every other, so. So that, that being a field um, is something that once you're connected through the body, you have access to all of that information. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah, so the strength of the intelligence in the head is that it can gain perspective. Now, perspective requires distance. You don't have perspective in the middle of something. You have to step back from it. So. As we, as we retreat, in effect, to that intelligence in the head, we can feel a distance between ourselves and the world and gain perspective on it. But the perspective only comes into its full value when it's integrated. And that happens through the body. Um, so, you know, the, the, the attunement, the world is always running through the body, whether we notice it or not. Mm. The, the reality in which we live is one in which everything affects everything else. And so there are ways in which we are um, picking up information from the world that we are unaware of consciously, but that we can feel. Yeah. So it's like the present itself. You can't, you can't know the present. It's never been here before. It's always changing. There's no way you can know something that is without a border, but you can feel it.
And that's what the body brings us to, the ability to feel this reality in which we are living. So it's like, in a way, we're, we're kind of, it's, it's coming in and out of us sometimes even, even though we're saying that it's not or, we, or that we're not um, giving any credence to it. You know, it's kind of happening on some level anyway, in some cases, would, would, would that be would that Well, be yeah, fair to say? I mean, the way I think of it... Because we're not disconnected completely, are we? You know, we are living connected to everything else, whether whether we want to kind of logically argue, logically argue against that fact. Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, I don't think you can logically argue against it because you'd be uh, overturning the whole of quantum mechanics yeah. in order to make that argument. That's so, what's ironic, actually, that it, being connected to everything else can actually be described <laughs> logically. Absolutely. You know, if you want to strip everything down in terms of how the air comes into our lungs and, you know, how, you know, we can't live without food. And it, it's, it's easy to see when you want to approach it like that, actually, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the body is always turning the world into itself and is always turning itself into the world you know that's that's just that's just the nature of the body and and we can believe we're disconnected which which you know the more relentlessly you you ensconce yourself in the head the more it will be obvious to you that you are alone in the world but it's 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 a it's a fantasy. It's a disconnected fantasy. Wholeness um, is inescapable. I mean, where would you go? Where you know wherever you know the whole of the cosmos is held in wholeness, in wholeness. So so we can't escape wholeness. We are always in wholeness, held in wholeness. But we can desensitize ourselves to it. That's and that's what systematically happens in our culture to the point where, you know, we, we have forgotten largely what it means to speak from the wholeness of your being or listen from the wholeness of your being. We, we, we've, we've lost the ability to feel the self in its wholeness or to feel the present in its wholeness. Well, if you're not feeling the present in its wholeness, you're not feeling the present because wholeness is all it is. The present doesn't exist independent of that quality. Mm. You, you mentioned again speaking and it, it's something, again, me, you know, I, I personally, I find myself quite often in the presentation mode, as you call it. Uh, it's good that I'm a bit more aware of it these days I'm, to the point where I kind of actually feel the energy disappearing, you know, and I'm and, and just coming to roundabout here. It, it's I, I'm I'm aware of it now, but could you could you kind of speak around that subject about this this idea of speaking, you know, not from an embodied place? What that looks like, and what speaking from embodiment looks like, and and how we can how we can do that, you know, how we can incorporate that in, in our speech? Um, it, it really, for me, comes back to the breath. So either the whole of the body is available to the breath or only part of the body 
is available to the breath. Well, if only part of the body is available to the breath, it's because in some way you have prohibited certain feelings. You're not allowed, because breath, breath flushes out feeling. Right. As you release the body to the breath, you're releasing the body to sensation. And what happens is we, you know, we shut the body down. I can, I can, I can close off my legs to the breath and my voice changes a bit. I can close off my belly to the breath. I can shut down my breath kind of going up through the body until all that's left of my voice is up here. And, and my body's not available to it. And why would I want it to be? But, but it's hard to listen to because my voice isn't, isn't grounded in my being. And so, and so the, you know, the issue of breath isn't, isn't one of breathing properly, because I don't think there is such a thing. I think every moment calls forth a slightly different breath. But the issue for me is just one of wholeness, is the whole of your body available to the breath. And I mean, you know, it may sound metaphoric, but I can feel the breath in the soles of my feet. I can feel the breath in my hips. Mm -hmm. I can feel the breath run up my spine. I can feel the breath in the top of my head. The body is like a balloon that, that slightly dilates with the in-breath and slightly releases with the out-breath. See, I, I totally believe you're there. You know, you know you've got quite a, a theatrical way of putting that which do you think that's informed by your work in theatre and you think that gives you a, a, an ability to kind of describe it that way or is that is that literally literal what what you're saying there about how you can feel the breath and where both both so it really is literal i mean really um um you can put your hand on my thigh and feel the breath mm. there because we're 65 percent water so if the body is released into its wholeness, the breath is a wave that travels through the whole of it, just the way a wave would travel across the surface of a pond. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's you know, it, it, is a, it is a literal thing in that sense, but it's also um, something that was necessary as an actor in theater if there's not the spaciousness in my body for the whole of the breath and my, the, the impact of my performance will be diminished. Mm. Um, and that's a big thing. So, so um, when, when we speak, we tend to control what we're saying and how we're saying it. Be, you know, Do you think that's wrapped up in, we're also think, we're also while we're speaking, worrying about how we might be perceived. Exactly, I think it, it, it primarily comes to that. Because you know, we basically understand that when you speak, everything that the breath touches is revealed on the voice. Well then, we, we tend not to let the breath touch certain things and we, we present ourselves in the way that we feel is, is correct for this situation. And then what is heard in the voice is that we're hiding. So you can't, you can't hide the hiding. And then, you know, when you speak, it's such a different thing to allow the voice to arise out of the body without, without an expectation of how it should sound. 
So there's a, there's a theater director, Michael Langham, whose advice to actors was, begin speaking a line without knowing where it will take you. And that's gorgeous, but when we start talking, you know, we've got that sense of exactly um, where this sentence should take us, and we don't release the whole of the body to its sensitivity, which might take us somewhere completely different. Yeah, it's the it's the it's kind of that fear of not not knowing where it's going to go or take us, and and wanting to have some kind of control on that as well. But I think it's also tied in with. You know, we believe in the self as a boundary identity, you know, as a concept. And so if we believe in that and we're attached to that, we're going to feel like we need to preserve it in some way. And defend it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Our whole, I mean, our whole culture upholds the idea of independence, um, that we're all independent um, and, and that, you know, my chair is independent from the floor, and and independence, independence in a way is the fantasy around which our culture has gathered itself, and our homes are independent, and our cars are independent, and we walk down the street in independence rather than in relationship. But but independence is is only a fantasy. There there's no such thing. There's not, there's not one example of independence in the whole of the cosmos. Everything affects everything. Everything relates to everything. And so to live your life in a way that is clinging to that, um, that fantasy is ultimately to, to hold on to hopes and beliefs and aspirations that belong to the mythological tyrant. And Joseph Campbell talked about the tyrant as the man of self-achieved independence. And that phrase could double as the American dream. Well, it's relevant for a lot of things. I know you're saying American dream and it's American based, but you know, I see enough of it, UK and everywhere else. Oh yeah really, you know, the ascent of the individual and it's the age of the individual in a, in a, in a way. The age of the selfie, the age of the, the, the personal rights. The, I mean, you can't sustain personal rights without coupling them with personal responsibilities. But responsibility brings us into relationship and we don't want that. We want our rights and, and, and it leaves us in isolation. And then we wonder why we feel alone and alienated um, in this world when, when that contraction from relationship can have no other consequence. Mm, it's quite paradoxical, isn't it? It's, in, in one sense, understanding ourselves as a boundaried self, you know, an individual, and on the back of that, there has come some good strides forward made in terms of welfare for people, individuals, as a result of that. But there's a downside, as you quite clearly... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think... Um, Independence is a fantasy, but individuality is clearly a reality. Mm. I mean, I, I'm an individual, you're an individual, and, but, but 
But individuality doesn't stand apart from no. the world. Individuality is sustained by and upheld by the currents of the world. Because your or my experiences from moment to moment are completely unique. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think you, you put that again when you were talking about the energies of resistance. The way they manifest from person to person is completely unique. So if anything, it upholds even further, you know, the notion of individuality. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this this podcast is for, it's for mind over matter. And it's also in conjunction with something else I do call healthy souls. And for the people listening to this, we're in a, a kind of extended community of of, of well-being, if you like. Um, speaking to you, reading your book, taking your workshop is all is all part of this well-being. You know, well-being in inverted commas these days. It's a, it's a it's a big deal, and there are various ways that people are strenuously striving towards achieving well-being you know what does what does well-being mean to you um <clears throat> i don't think true well-being uh can coexist with division so we live in such a binary culture that we have compartmentalized parts of ourselves. Well, there's the part of me that wants to be physically fit, and then there's a part of me that likes to do crossword puzzles, and who knows what, right? And I can be analytical, or I can feel from my heart, but they don't belong together. And so we've, we've got these compartmentalized um, realms of our lives that impair our wholeness. And the word health and the word wholeness come from the same Latin root. So to me, as you grow into your wholeness, you grow into a sensitivity that um, invites well-being, that guides you to well-being, that um, we, you know, we are, uh, we are an addictive culture. And, and I think I think at the core of, of many addictions is an emptiness inside where we have, we have disconnected from our being because our life depended on it very often. And that, that hole needs to be filled and it, it needs to be filled with shopping or with alcohol or with drugs or whatever, whatever the addiction may be. Fitness, you know, can be, can be an addiction. Um, and until that divide between our thinking and our being is healed and we soften into wholeness, I think our, our ability to experience well-being will be diminished. So how does that manifest for you in decision-making when it comes to food, you know, your breakfast time, caffeine intake, alcohol, exercise, because, you know, there's lots of people, and I've been here myself, you know, all meander. I'd like to have thought at some point, I'm taking all these boxes, you know, I'm doing that right, I'm doing that right, I'm doing that right. You know, I'm managing my health and well-being <laughs> quite well here 
for you, how, how does this how does this manifest in your decisions towards those things? Food, especially, because I think a lot of the people listening have got an interest in in food, and and they come to our our page, Healthy Souls Community, to to get some information and advice on food and to our events. So how, how does that manifest for you with those kind of decisions? Yeah, I mean, all, all, all there's so much information about food that is so um, valuable. Um, and, and I take it in and it informs me. Um, I, I like uh, Michael Pollan's really simple, um, you know, eat real food, Mostly vegetables, um, not too much. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, something, something like that. But I really, I really find imposing top-down decisions on my body is injurious. It hurts. The, the judgment aspect. The judgment, that. the shame, the I should eat this and not that, um, and I just, I just don't tend to go there. So I'll drop down to my body and feel what it longs for, feel what it hungers for, feel, you know, as truly as I can um, when I'm hungry and when I'm not, and how to find the peace in the body's energy that allows me to be nourished by the present rather than seeking um, substitute nourishment in the world around me. Yeah, I've been reading quite a bit about about that in... Feldenkrais, mm-hmm. some of his work, and he's talking about conflicting motivations and how, you know, certain kinds of needs, are, people are trying to fill a lot of the time needs with things that don't fill that need. You know, the, the, the motivations are conflicting inside, so competing, you know, is, is, is people are trying to fulfill a need that food will never... No, we'll no, and, 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 and a variety of other You know, rather than rather than um, putting food in your belly, what if you let the breath there, mm. right? So we 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 hold so much tension in the gut that 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 uh, we've desensitized it, and to allow the breath to drop into there is to allow this wave of replenishment to come to your being, and mm. um, it really it really brings you to a place. I find anyway of of balance where that you know that need to diet or the 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 shame of eating the wrong thing or whatever it might be all the top down implement implementations and even a workout oh I should go for a run which is very different from feeling in the body the the yearning to to move and and to answer that um, I think it can get a bit difficult to take yourself away from the judgment and the blame and the shoulds and should nots when there's a condition you're trying to heal which is being impacted directly from maybe foods that you've been used to up until that point so if you know for for example a certain food causes something in you like inflammation in your bowel or, or, or a rash of some kind or and you know you kind of find yourself keep going to that food or if it's sugar you know that's feeding all this bad bacteria in your stomach if you buy into that it's it can be difficult to negotiate your way 
away from the, the judgments of the self when you fall back into a way of eating which may be doing you harm oh it absolutely uh. oh absolutely and especially you know it's especially difficult in our environment which tends to be static and um um we our environment grows stale you know when you used to live in the in the forest it was changing every day now we live in our homes and it doesn't change and it's like um bruce alexander did uh research on addiction with rat park i don't know if you know of I that do very yeah much. so so where the rats had a a lively environment and they they no, had no, no addiction with anything yeah 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 towards, yeah but i think there's this I, i think there's this quality this reckoning um that is not easy but is possible and necessary of being gentle on yourself and and um bringing love to parts of yourself that that are starving for it mm-hmm. and how to how to do that you know it's and and it's not easy it's a lifetime's work in many cases but it's possible and and i don't know of any any journey that's more important yeah i think one other place i wanted to kind of take this interview um you know i'm from liverpool and played football for a long time you know it's a big passion of mine i support liverpool fc you know still very passionately these days as do a lot of the people i know whether it's Liverpool or Everton. And so football is not just part of English culture, but, you know, de- definitely in Liverpool, it's a big thing. And I kind of moved away from it about 18, 19, when a couple of things didn't go my way, didn't make it into the the final selection of the England schoolboys under 18. And I, I think I carried a bit, of, a bit of pain from that and moved away from football and got into a different lifestyle. But I've, I've come back to it on a few occasions And without it now, you know, I realised that I'm missing something. And I kind of trivialised football. But when I think of it, you know, on a, on a, on a deeper level, what football is and, and how people, what people get from, not just football, but from sport, movement. And, you know, for me, without kind of t- making football sound too pretentious from what people, from how people usually understand it, but also trying to make a link for the people back home listening. You know, football, for me, I think the reason why I got so much from it was because I mentioned earlier I was a thinker, thought too much. There was no place for thinking while in the game. You It's know, a relief. So, yeah, so what What are your thoughts on, not, not just football, but, you know, sports in general and its place in in society and, and in our culture, in our Western culture? And, and how does that fit with, you know, your, your understanding of everything else? Yeah, you see, I think um, that state that an athlete finds of, of being in the zone mm. is a universally understood state of harmony. And that is a fully embodied state that is so finely attuned 
to the world around. So massively. Yeah, and and you're not so you're not in charge. There's nothing top down about it, right? Every it's like it's like the world is almost in slow motion and you just feel everything and and are guided in every movement. Well, the guidance that we find in sport, we can translate into our lives. The same guidance is there. And I think sport is such a I mean there's sport is about relationship sport is about about being present with the whole of your being mm. to whether it's a tennis ball or a football it you know it doesn't matter and um it's maybe as you say it's maybe the one activity where it's where it's where you learn experientially that it is defeating to try to outthink your situation mm. That without 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 the body's intelligence, it you'll never make a go of it. I think like the the, the rise of sport, certainly football, in, in terms of how how massive it is now, and uh, widely followed, and how much money's in the game, purely on the basis of how much people enjoy it and love it. For, for me, it it kind of seems like without knowing it, it's it's like the West, it's like the Western culture's own kind of antidote. Or medication, if you like, to to the way we're usually going about our business. It's like we've we've found something that w- without knowing or thinking about it. Something which kind of takes the edge off a bit, and and is you know maybe a reason why it is so dominant and, and prevalent in our society. Yeah. So you know, like humans naturally will will want to engage in something which yeah, which you know takes the edge off a bit. Yeah, and I am, uh, you know, as you say that, I'm thinking of sailing, and I'm thinking of skiing and tennis. And <laughs> it's true of of all those sports. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Lastly, so as I say, I've, I've come all the way here from Liverpool, and we, we're probably going to have a lot of listeners in in Liverpool. And for anyone listening, I'm really hoping to 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 get Phil over to our place sometime this year. So we're working on that. Can 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 you give us an understanding of when I say the word Liverpool to you? I mean, it, it conjures up. I'll just carry on with that. When I say Liverpool to you, what does it? What immediately comes to mind for you? And, and maybe could you could you give a little something for the people at home you may be coming to see soon? Um. It, Liverpool conjures so much, and of course, I, how could I avoid the Beatles yeah, in that? Because I know you can't. And and um, you know, as I was as I was growing up as a teenager, they were they were they were. I saw the Beatles Did um, you? live in Toronto. Yeah, um, but but um, that's a that's rare. I don't think I've met many people who've saw. Oh them. yeah, I was there. I was there. I loved it. Um, but. Um, Boy, the you know, there's something um, there's something you know in my, in my and I've never been to Liverpool. I've been to other places in England, but never Liverpool. But there's there's a there's a proud history there, and there's a a sense for me anyway of um, of of people somehow knowing how to come together. Um, not all the time, but but Spot it on. really yeah, right. it really feels that way to me. Yeah, there's countless examples of that, and you've, you've definitely hit on something there that I think will 
people will relate to and respond to definitely that's it's a big part of us so um i look forward to experiencing that for myself oh yeah you'll love yeah. it you'll love it yeah well for now i think i'd like to conclude the interview conversation and uh once again just thank you for you know giving me the space to to do such a thing and um the opportunity to find a few more things out from you in person which you can get so much from the book but you know in person it's it's a lot different so a big thank you for that and also i've got so much more to look forward to with the rest of the weekend so thank you for your presence your wisdom your time your energy and um and and, and we hope to see you again soon i hope to see you in liverpool again absolutely yeah thank you dear nice one